today. There's a story told of a woman who um, was feeling a bit lonely. So she went to the pet shop to buy a pet. And looking around at all the pets, she decided in the end she'd buy a parrot. And she chose a parrot because the parrot could talk to her. And other pets couldn't. So she was excited about having this parrot as a pet. And she said to the shop owner, will he talk? And she, he said, oh yes, he'll learn to talk. He'll be fine. And so she took it home. There too later, she was back in the shop and said, he won't talk. And the pet shop owner said, well, have you got a mirror? Parrots like mirrors. What you need is a mirror because um, when you're not there, he needs somebody to talk to. So he'll see himself and start talking to it and he'll learn to talk. So she bought a mirror. Sure enough, a couple of days later, she was back and said, he won't talk. He hasn't talked. I put a mirror in, he, he doesn't talk. And the pet shop owner said, well, have you got a ladder? Parrots like ladders and it keeps them fit. Going up and down the ladder. And so she bought a ladder and put a little ladder in the cage. A couple of days later, she was back at the pet shop. Said, I bought a mirror and he won't talk. I bought a ladder and he won't talk. Hasn't started. And she, he said, well, perhaps he's just a bit miserable. Why not get a little swing? Parrots like swings in their cages. Buy a swing. And so she bought a swing and put it in the cage. Two or three days later, sure enough, as you've guessed, she was back in the shop and she said, well, he hasn't said a thing. As far as I can see, he's not, he's not talking. In fact, I'm ever so sad to say that he's died. And the pet shop owner said, well, I'm ever so sorry about it. Did he say, did he say anything before he died? And she said, yes. And the, parrot, the, the, the uh, pet shop owner said, well, what did the parrot say? And he, the parrot said, don't they sell any food in that pet shop? <laughs> the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And sometimes we get involved in doing all these other things that we think are great and good, but we miss out the main thing. And we've come in our Just Ten series to the last in our series, but it's the first of the commandments, which is commandment number one, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is commandment number one. And as we've already thought this morning, there are reasons why this one is number one. And actually, that's the reason we've gone backwards from ten to number one in this series of just ten, thinking about the commandments. And the reason is that when you put God first, all the other things fall into place. If you get this one right, all the other commandments fall into place. The first few commandments, you may remember, are all about our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You must not make any idols to take God's place. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You must keep one day holy to the Lord. They're all to do with our relationship with God. And then the rest of the commandments are to do with our relationships with each other. 
how we behave towards each other. Honour your father and mother. You must not commit murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not tell lies. You must not covet. They're to do with our relationship with each other. But number one, commandment number one, is the top one, and it's important because it puts everything else into perspective. And if we want our relationships with each other to be right, it means that our relationship with God must be put right to start with. And uh, God is never going to play second fiddle to anybody else. It isn't as if God is there and he's applying for a job and he fills in the application form and we have to decide, are we going to have this one or that one? It isn't that at all. He will not play second fiddle to anyone. He is God. He is the Lord who controls all things. He stands alone. And this is the God who intervened in the history of this world on your behalf and on my behalf because he wants to be first in our lives. He is God. Now, there are some people, and you may be some people here, who are saying, well, I've been trying to find God all my life. I've been searching for God. No, you haven't. Sorry to be so blunt about it, but no, you haven't. In fact, the Bible puts it like this. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek for God. And goes on to say, no one seeks for God. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 11. That was from the Psalms. This is Romans chapter 11. He says, no one seeks for God. There is not one that does good, not even one. King David described it like this. He says, if I am on the run from God, I find that I... Wherever I go, God is there, and I, and I want to get away from him. He says, if I, r- I run as far as I can, where can I go from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I descend to hell, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of the sea, you're there. If I travel as far as I can across the sea to the far sides of the ocean, you're there, traveling as far as I possibly can. If I try to hide in darkness, I find you're there everywhere you are. But I'm trying to run away from you. That's what the psalmist was saying. You see, it's not God who's hard to find, really. It's the fact is that in our heart of hearts, so often we're the ones who are on the run from God. We like to talk about seeking God, but what actually we mean when we say that is that we're actually looking for a God that we want to make, the sort of God we want, which isn't the real God. People are saying they seek God, but actually the God they're seeking is not the God of the Bible. It's a very famous poem that was written by Francis Thompson, called The Hound of Heaven, in which he pictures God like a hound, bloodhound, after you, pursuing, 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 pursuing. And he talks about running away from God and trying to get away from God. I fled him, he says. And the the poem is all about him. In fact, God says in the Bible, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. As Jesus said, we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And he said that that's the greatest commandment. So as we think about putting God first, we're thinking about this commandment number one. God must come first. Now, the, the, the response you may have is, well, I really would like that. I would like God to be number one in my life. 
but I'm not quite sure what it actually means for him to be number one. Well, imagine for a moment your life is like a car going down the road. Some people say, well, I, I want Jesus in my life. I, I want Jesus in the car of my life, in my car. All right, well, where, where do you want him? Where have you got Jesus? Maybe you say, I already have Jesus in my life. All right, well, where is he? For some people, he's in the boot. So that when you turn up to church on Sunday, you open the boot and take Jesus out, let him have a run for an hour in the service, and then before you go back, you put him back in the boot because you don't want anybody else to know that you've got him in the car. You don't want your family to know. You don't want your neighbors to know that you go to church. You don't want your neighbors to know that you've got Jesus. So you keep him in the boot. And some are like, well, no, not quite that. I, I, I'm not like that. No, he's in the car. All right, well, where is he in the car? Is he in the back seat? Not in control, but he's in the back seat. He's a passenger. And you don't mind him going around with you, but uh, that's about it. He's just behind you and so on. You're the one that's in control. He's like a passenger in your life. And then you say, well, no, he's not quite that bad. He, he's in the front of the car, all right? Where is he? Is he in the, in the passenger seat in the front? You know, you want him as a companion to be able to chat to and talk to and so on. But uh, that's about it. You're still in control. Or is Jesus in the driving seat of your life? That's the big question today. That's what it means for God to be first and not to have any other gods except him. And when he's in control, the problem with it, when Jesus is in control is when you're driving down the road, you come to the roundabout, he might say, well, I want to turn right here down the pathway of forgiveness. And you say, I don't want to, be, don't want to forgive her. I don't want to forgive him. I want to go left. But you see, if he's in control, he goes where he will. Or he may come to a junction and says, well, let's go down this road, turn left here, go down the road of generosity. I don't want to be generous. I want to go right in a different pathway. You see the picture we're describing here. It's all very well to say, I want Jesus in my life. But the question is, is he number one? Is he in control? And that's what this commandment really is all about. So loving God, making him number one in your life, is really what this first commandment is all about. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what does it mean in practice? And let's spend the rest of our time just thinking about that in practice. What does it mean? And to help us understand, we're going to th think of it in the terms of the word first. F-I-R-S-T, the, fir the first letter of each thing that we're going to talk about. First of all, if we're going to put God as first in our life, it means that he must be first in my finances. In my finances. You know, when the Israelites reached the promised land, and they're about to go into the promised land, Moses talked to them. And he talked about having the endless problems that possessions cause. And he put it like this. Well, he didn't use these words. He says, you mustn't walk down Stuff Street or Pile Street or live in Moore Square. You know, where we want more all the time. We're wanting more and wanting more. And he said this to him. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees, decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, 
when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increases, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. See, the trouble is, uh, personal agendas and personal possessions can get in the way and can suffocate our love for God till it's the other things that really matter. And the more we have, the bigger the pile that we have, the more attention it demands until we haven't got time for God. We've got to do this and got to do that because of all the things that we've got. We've got the caravan, so we've got to be out at weekends. We've got this, we must go on holiday here and there, and so on. Got the money, so we have to spend it. Let's go off and forget all about the things of God. And it can go on and on. Not that there's anything wrong with the things at all. And it's quite right sometimes to possess these things. But it's the position that they have. And finance is the first indicator of whether God is first. Second indicator. Is God putting, are we putting God first in our interests? Our interests. You know, our hobbies. Our career. Our recreation. What is it that really interests you? Said it on the video, didn't it? You know, what's the one thing that you would say, that's the thing that motivates me? That's the thing that turns me on? That's the really interesting thing in my life. You can tell a lot about people by the things that they get excited about. Isn't it interesting that you can go to a football match and you can scream and shout and wave your hands in the air and dance up and down and all that sort of stuff and you're called a fan. Come to church and show any enthusiasm and you're called a fanatic. The problem is, you see, that we, sh- we, we show the things that we're interested in, really, by the way we behave and the time that we give to those things. You know, the word enthusiasm comes from two little Greek words, en and theos, in God. And originally the word meant someone who is in God was an enthusiast. But of course we don't like that these days. We don't like Christians to be enthusiastic too much, so we've marginalized that. We don't want enthusiasts, thank you very much, and so on. What do you think about most? What do you talk about most? What do you read most? What do you spend your time thinking about or actually doing? Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, says the Apostle Paul. Your interest, putting God first in your interests. Thirdly, your relationships, putting God first in your relationships. Let me put it like this. If Jesus is number one in your life and Jesus is number one in your friend's life or your wife's life or your husband's life, don't you think that will affect the way you deal with each other? I mean, Jesus is not going to fight against Jesus. So it brings a completely new relationship when Jesus is first in two people's lives. And it means that if we spend your time arguing and so on, it's because Jesus isn't first in one of the relationships, perhaps both of them. And it's important that we get to the grips with the fact that Jesus must be first in our relationships. We must obey God rather than men, says the apostles, when they were thinking about these things. I mean, King, David, uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar a long time ago tried to get the children 
of Israel that they'd taken back as slaves. You know, those three people, um, what were their names? Meshach, Yorshak, and Abungalow. No. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Try to get those people to bow down to his golden image. But no, he wouldn't bow down to the golden. They wouldn't bow down. And the king called them in front of them and said, if you don't bow down to the golden image, you know I'll burn you up in my furnace. And they said this, or at least Nebuchadnezzar said this to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, Is it true that you will not bow down and serve my gods or worship the golden image I've set up? Now when you hear the sounds of all kinds of music, if you are not ready to fall down and worship the image I made, good. But if you don't worship, if you do bow down, that's good. But if you don't bow down, I will throw you immediately into the blazing furnace. Then which god will be able to rescue you? And their answer was simple. We will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. How God might rescue us, we haven't any idea. Even whether God will rescue us, we haven't any idea. But we have put God first and we will not bow down and worship your golden image. And they were thrown into the furnace. They didn't know if God would rescue them. They didn't know if they would die. But they knew they'd put God first. And in his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, they were able to stand up and say, we've made God first in our, in our lives, and therefore it affects how we relate to you. That's what the Bible is speaking about. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar, a bit later on, looked up to heaven and said, my sanity has been restored. I praised and worshipped the Most High and honoured the one who lives forever and ever, because they'd seen God. He'd seen God in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and in Daniel. In our relationships, it's so easy not to let God be first. Fourth thing, finances, interests, relationships, and then the fourth thing is putting God first. Whoops, we've gone off. Putting God first in our schedule, our schedule. You know, we get so busy and forget God, don't we? Putting God first, not just on Sunday. You know, Hazel and I married on the 26th of September, 1970. I think that's right, isn't it? <laughs> I think it, I remember, I remember it happened anyway. We got married then. And when we stood in front of all those people at our wedding service, both of us at different times in the service said, I do or I will. can't remember which actual words we used at the time. I do or I will. I said it, she said it. Now supposing after the reception, I've said, well, that was a lovely service. It was great to stand there and say, yes, I take you to be my lawful wedded wife. I love you very much. In fact, I put a ring on your finger to show that I love you very much. I'll see you in a week's time and uh, I've got a few things to do, but I'll be back next week and then then after that uh, well I'll, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll see you every week one day of the week I'll see you every week don't worry I, I love you and that's why I'm giving you one day a week rest of the time well I, the beach is so interesting and the going out for walks is so interesting and work is so interesting and all the rest of the stuff would that be sufficient in a relationship well, just ask Hazel, my wife. No, I'm sure it wouldn't be. She sometimes feels that that happens anyway. But, but uh, and I noticed several wives nodding at that point. 
But you know what I'm saying here? It's easy to let our schedules destroy our relationship if we're not careful. And he wants to be first in our schedules so that we have a relationship with him in everything. It's not that we don't do these other things and we spend our whole time, you know, seven days a week um, in, in prayer or something like that or re- just reading the Bible. It's not that. It's that in the things that we have to do, we make sure that in those things, at work he's still first, at home he's still first, in our hobbies he's still first. It's putting him first in our schedule so that he can be first. And it means that to, do, to maintain that relationship It means setting aside time each day for him. And it's a good thing, you know, to set aside some time. You might want to set aside some time in the morning or the evening or midday or whenever's most appropriate for you. King David talked about morning, noon, and night as he set his time aside. I will pray morning, noon, and night, and he will hear me and answer me. Psalm 55. Setting time, set time aside for God so that he's first in our schedule. You know, sometimes we treat God like dieting. You know, I'm dieting. We would never dream of saying, well, I'm not going to eat anything Monday to Saturday, but then everything I would have eaten Monday to Saturday, I'd eat it all on Sunday. We'd be ill. We're ill. We get terrible indigestion. But, you know, we treat God like that. Spiritually speaking, we say, well, I don't have much to do with him Monday to Saturday, but Sunday I don't mind giving him some time. No, when we're putting God first in our schedule, it means every day he is first, and we set aside time for him. And the fifth thing, the T, trouble, putting him first in my troubles. We all go through troubles and pressures and crises. Some of them are very difficult to bear, and some of them are not. But generally, there are two types of troubles that we face. Major troubles and minor troubles. Minor troubles are the things that you suffer from. Major troubles are the things that I suffer from. That's how we define them in our minds. Of course, it's not true. But the question is, who do you turn to when life begins to cave in? So often we just see God as a sort of last resort. When the pressures get so big that we cannot bear them, well, that's the time to turn to God. And of course, that is the time to turn to God. But it's not the only time to turn to God. Instead of making him the, f- the last call, surely we should make him the first port of call, so that from the very earliest times of difficulties and so on, we're sharing our lives with him and our needs and so on. You see, it's only when darkness comes that you can see the stars and sometimes the Lord allows us to see things in times of darkness that we wouldn't otherwise see. Having no other gods before him means that when you have nothing left but God, you'll find that God is enough. So these five practical areas, is he first in your finances? Is he first in your interests? Is he first in your relationships? Is he first in your schedule? Is he first in the midst of your troubles? But let's finish on another note. How is it possible for him to be first in these areas? How can he be possible in these areas? What does it mean to put him first in 
word and in deed, in business and in leisure and in friendships and in career and money and time and talents at work and at home. How can God be first in those things? What does it mean in practice? The thing is that God knows that it's not possible for us to live like that. Because the Bible is realistic. And that, for that reason, God sent Jesus so that when we have failed in making him first, then Jesus will deal with the consequences of putting him second. The word the Bible uses, of course, is the word sin, but we don't like to talk about that very much these days. But the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And through the Lord Jesus, we can put God first in our lives. He himself takes up residence in our lives. And not only that, he deals with the consequences of the times we have failed. And he sends his Holy Spirit to take up residence in our lives. So the question boils down to this. What will you do with Jesus? Will you allow Jesus to take control of your life and come into your life to be your Savior and Lord? Let me read a little poem. It's a rather old little poem, but I'll just read it to you. If Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. Oh, I know you'd give him the nicest room to such an honored guest and all the food you'd serve him would be the very best. And you would keep assuring him you're glad to have him there that serving him in your home is joy beyond compare. But when you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door with outstretched arms to welcome your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in to hide some magazines and put the Bible where they'd been? Would you turn off the video and hope he hadn't heard and wished you hadn't uttered that last loud hasty word? Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus come right in or would you rush about? I wonder if the Saviour came to spend a day or two. Would you just go on doing all the things you always do? Would you go right on saying the things you always say? Would life for you continue as it does now from day to day? Would our family conversation keep up its usual pace? Or would you find it hard each meal to say, thank you, Grace? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you read and let him know on which the things your mind and spirit feeds? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you plan to go? Or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet with all your closest friends or would you hope they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever, on and on? Or would you sigh with great relief when he at last was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus came in person to spend a day with you. And the fact is that Jesus stands today and says he wants to be Lord of our life, Lord of your life, Lord of my life. And he wants to be first. Will you open your life and let him be first? St. Augustine said, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. 
Christ is not Lord of all, if, he, if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So will you let him be Lord of all? Let's pray together. The question this morning is, does Jesus have all of you? General William Booth was once asked, the founder of the Salvation Army, the secret of his amazing life, and he said, I told Jesus he could have all there is of William Booth. Could you replace in that little sentence William Booth with your name? I told Jesus that he could have all there is of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these Ten Commandments given to guide us in our relationship with you and our relationship with other people. But now as we come to a close of this series, we want to acknowledge in your presence that we want to have no other gods before you. We want you, Lord, to be first. Please forgive us for the times when he has not been first. You've not taken that supreme place. And help me now as I open my life to you that you might be first in my life. I invite you, Lord Jesus, to come in and take control to enable me to be what I by nature could not be, one in whom God has first place. Please cleanse me from my sin and put your power within so that I might live with you as first in everything. So, Lord, take the driving seat of my life today, I pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark's going to come now and we're going to lead us in a closing song. And I just want to say this, as he does so, after our time is over and we're having coffee and so on, if you're taking that step of opening your life to the Lord Jesus today, why don't I come and just sit down in the front here and be able to pray with you just for a brief moment or two and then I'll be able to pray for you and encourage you on the way, pass a piece of Christian literature on to you as you make Jesus Lord of your life. So do come and sit down there and we'll be able to talk with you just for a minute or two before you too have a cup of coffee and go on your way. May God bless you. As, and each one of us as we seek to make him Lord of our lives.